Hello, folks, and welcome to the Sense and Theory podcast, where we cut through the bias and extremism in order to find common ground that brings us together. I'm Sense. And I'm Theory. And today sees the exciting return of Change My View, everyone's favorite type of Sense and Theory podcast. So what are we going to definitely my favorite when I have to like (laughs) introspectively look at my own position and have it challenged. I love them. And, you know, it's been too long since we did the last one. So I'm really glad that we got a chance to do another one. And today's is kind of interesting because it's 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 a really it's sort of a special change my view with Sense and Theory because today we're going to be talking about the death penalty. And up until very recently, I think you and I were of a, a pretty like mind regarding the death penalty. We were both kind of, um, and you know, I don't want to put too many words in your mouth, but we sure. were both kind of fence sitters. You I'm, know? I'm definitely squarely on the fence when it comes to the death penalty. Right. Yes. Well, I've actually recently changed my mind. Uh, my view has already been changed. Mm, malleable. And so I like it. today I'm going to see if I can bring you over to my side. So it's, it's I think it's going to be really interesting. It might only take a nudge. We'll see. <laughs> but uh, before we get into all that, I uh, just want to say, hey, guys, we we appreciate all the the messages and emails that you guys send. We're seeing more of you kind of trickle into the oh, subreddit. Yeah. Every time people come great. into the sub- subreddit and, and leave comments, I get warm inside. Yeah. The Patreon is growing. It makes me feel like you're out there listening and appreciating us. Thanks, yeah, guys. We absolutely love that. Just, you know, keep it up. We'd like to see more iTunes reviews, more emails, still accepting questions for the Q&A episode. Go ahead and send those to us. Yes. And uh, just keep doing what you do, and we'll keep doing what we do. Thanks, guys. We really Really appreciate it. So, uh, uh, without further ado, yeah, to kick off this episode, I think the best thing to do is you know, we said you said you were kind of a fence sitter, but I think we should establish kind of a baseline for where you're at with the death penalty. So, okay. I've, I've come up with some questions that I think will kind of help get that out there. All right. right? So, first question What is in your mind the purpose of the death penalty? That's a pretty easy one. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it is to protect. Uh, the citizenry mm-hmm. uh, from very dangerous people. Yeah. So do you think like, are you talking about like in, in, in the aspect of it removes a dangerous person from the population? Well, see, when you put it like that, you know, jailing already does that. Right. Right. right, right. <laughs> but I, I think at some point it's like, you know they're going to get out. It's I guess not maybe in the case of of life imprisonment, but at that mm-hmm. point we're we're paying to have some scumbag mass murderer or mass rapist, um, you know, sit in jail. Yeah, and I don't like the idea. I, I feel like there comes a point where someone has gone so far that you just say, "Nah, you're pulling the plug." Yeah, uh, no, you're just gone. You just don't. You don't deserve to live among us. Yeah. No, I, I, I actually still agree with you. Right. So like when I was in support of the death penalty, um, I felt like by, by taking someone's life or, or performing a certain crime that hits a standard that is so heinous that you actually forfeit a lot of things and that you have chosen to kind of remove yourself from society. Sure. And, and actually what's interesting is I'm, I'm going to take you on this journey today, but I still hold that opinion. That opinion didn't have to change. Hmm. Okay. okay. So uh, next question. When is it appropriate to implement the death penalty? So what is that threshold? This is this is where it starts getting a little bit tricky. Um, I think people can come back from being murderers um, 
you know, I know there are good people walking around in the world that have murdered people. I know that for a fact. Yeah. Um, so, you know, murder alone. Well, unless you're ready to execute everyone who's ever been a soldier. <laughs> sure. Right? I mean, well, like murder, I, murder I, in and of itself. I think that gets a little shaky. I don't think you can quite say kill all killing is murder. Right. Um, of course, I'm not the type to also say just because it's state sponsored means you're not a murderer. <laughs> yeah, you know, right, but right. there is a, there is a line in there. Um, uh, it's a good question. I, I think that standard should be somewhat malleable. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's always cut and dry. I don't think you can just say, "Well, if you kill three people," um, but yeah. for example, if you're if if you're a 19 year old kid that decides like hey, I'm going to murder my parents, my grandparents, the neighbors, uh, my kid's sister, uh, and I'm going to hang the dog by his toenails from a rope after I you know, cut him open and, and splayed his skin out. Like, nah, dude, we yeah, should remove you you've crossed the from line. the equation, yeah. right? Yeah. So like, it's a, hard, it's a hard question to nail down. Mm-hmm. It's one of those fluid things that like, I'll know it when I see it, Yeah, and I hope the judges know it when they see it too. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get you. Um, for this, this last question, I want you to just talk generally, right? It doesn't have to be super specific, but in your mind, what protections, if any, should the accused slash convicted receive to ensure the death penalty is applied appropriate? And that's, and that's a real, a real gray area. I mean, we got people sitting on death row, um, you know, for 20 years, right. sometimes waiting for appeals mm-hmm. and appealing and reappealing and, you know, this, that, and the other and, you know, I strongly believe that everyone deserves their chance for justice. And I, I also have a strong belief that we can never know the truth. Mm-hmm. We can only make as close of an approximation as we're able to make. So, right. you know, there's a part of me that understands that in the case of justice, human enacted justice, like we're always going to make mistakes, right, right? right? So we do have to allow um, some some blow off valve, some form uh, of of redress for those who are wrongly accused. Um, you're already making this really really hard, <laughs> yeah. and it's clearly illustrating why I'm on the fence. Yeah. Like I'm I'm on the fence because hey, if I was falsely accused of some heinous heinous crime, and you've put me uh, on death row. Like, I'm going to want chance after chance after chance to prove my innocence, especially yeah. when you consider things like like science changing mm-hmm. and, and DNA evidence changing. I mean, mm-hmm. I know there's people that have been acquitted uh, because of faulty DNA tests and right, things. Right. So there's always that, you know, there's always that idea that, yeah, maybe we're wrong about this. And, yeah. and I, you know, so I don't know. Well, That's a so really hard question. What I've, what I've found out and what I'm going to try to lay out for you today is I think that, you know, I I always had the opinion that um, the death penalty was a little bit uh, like abortion, right? Like in that I kind of left it up to the victim's families. You know what I'm saying? Like whatever they ask for, like who who am I to go in and be like, no, you shouldn't ask for that. You know what I mean? That's so weird to me. Because to me, it seemed like that was so... I guess what I'm what I'm trying to say is there was room for executions but, but in families, my worldview. But families are hurting, right? Like they're 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 victims. I don't feel like I feel like that asks for bias off the jump, right? I yeah. mean, you can never ask someone whose son has been well, in some cases, sure, but I don't think it's generally a good idea 
um, to leave that on on victims because well, no, I'm not saying I, I leave it entirely on victims. What I'm saying is, whereas I personally um, wouldn't, you know, to me, I think it's one of the first contradictions that you run into when you're a small kid. It's what are you telling me? We're going to kill a killer <laughs> yeah, to teach people to show that him that killing, killing is wrong. wrong. Right. You know what I mean? Right? That's one of the first. So whereas I personally didn't agree with it, but at the same time, I, you know, there are people who commit acts that are so heinous again, that I felt like if the, if the, the family, if they needed that to heal, then I, I felt weird standing in the way mm, of that. Mm, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. Like, I felt like there was room in my worldview for the death penalty. Right. And what I've come to realize and what I, again, hope to lay out today is that a lot of those positions don't necessarily, less of that had to change than I thought would be necessary for me to come out and just be like, no, I oppose the death penalty in, in all forms, basically, right now. Interesting. So today, what, what we're going to talk, I'm going I'm to break it down into three different sections here. What does it cost? What are we achieving? And what do we risk by allowing the death penalty to keep going as it has gone for so many years in this country? Those are really, really good questions. <laughs> and, I, and I think the answers ultimately determine whether you're in favor of the death penalty yeah, or not. I, I think so. So what does it cost? Of course, Eileen Wright, you knew we were going to talk about like money and economics <laughs> and stuff. So Surely you're not going <laughs> to tell me. I'm just going to blow your spot. You are not going to tell me it costs more to execute someone than it does to keep them in prison for life, that sounds ridiculous. It absolutely costs more to execute somebody. What than if you're does 19 years old to keep? So here's here's from 19 to to 85. Yeah, actually, what's what's really interesting is that uh, we have people on death row who have been there 16 and 20 years. So so I want you to. But we pay ICE eleven thousand dollars a night for a bed. Like how? Well, you're paying them. $11,000 a night for their bed the entire time that they are in prison. Not to mention all the investment that you put into the trial to convict them in the first place. Mm. Here's some numbers I want you to think about. Prior to the abolishment of the death penalty in 2014 in the state of Maryland, the cost for a non-death penalty murder case was $1.1 million, uh, which was like $870,000 in imprisonment. And then two hundred and fifty thousand dollars on the actual trial. So that's total cost over the over the lifetime of the that, sentence. And that is uh, through the trial process. Through okay? the trial, all and the way to the actual the end like of... imprisonment. That is a separate number, but you know, oh, okay, like that is imprisonment during oh the during trial. the trial. Holy right. smokes, exactly. that's that's a lot of money. <laughs> While the cost for a death penalty case were three million dollars. Whoa. $1.3 million in imprisonment, $1.7 million in trial. Why Why the discrepancy there? Why, well, well, what makes a, a death penalty trial so different that it that it costs more? I mean, and imprisonment, I mean, is it, is it a difference in like supermax and, well, and max? Like what? In, as far as imprisonment, absolutely. So especially when you get into, and you know, I've got some other figures here, but when you get into the long-term imprisonment of somebody who's on death row, it absolutely costs more money than somebody who's just in general population for life. They are on death row. Oftentimes the psychological toll of the fact that any day their last appeal is going to get canceled and they're going to be put to death takes, you know, just it, it wreaks havoc with them. Mm. So you've got them on suicide watch. You've got them on extra guards uh, just in general, because yeah, a lot segregation of these guys, from Gen Pop. what do they have to lose? They're on death row. So of course they're the type of guys who are going to take a swipe at the guard. Sure. They're, they're in solitary confinement. They have special dietary, need, you know, stuff like that. Meanwhile, when we're talking about the trial, 
it's it's the idea that the stakes are so high, right? We're talking about an execution. Right. So the investigations are the deeper. The investigation is so much more in depth. You've got to call in. And it should uh, be. I, I think in most states that have the death penalty, uh, any death penalty case requires two attorneys on, wow. on like both sides. Good. You know, to handle all the the things that may come up and arise. So what we see is that oftentimes, especially with the long waiting periods that we have because of the necessary appeal process, right? We both feel like the appeal process is absolutely super, necessary. Yeah, absolutely. Super um, You've got somebody who spent more to convict them and then they're on death row for 16 to 20 years. So now they're, uh, you know, let's say they were 30. Now they're up in their 50s. They need more medical treatments because, you know, mm. maybe they've got prostate cancer and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Yes, it can co- it costs more because there's such a big jump at the beginning in trial cost fees that it's hard for somebody who's got life without parole to catch up. Right. And, and you know, in a sense, there are people who have died of natural causes on death row while waiting. So it was to be without, executed. You know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. Um, I mean, at the same time. You don't want to get all freaked out about it. So what some of the states are doing is they're actually passing these laws that shorten that appeal process Uh because of the monetary concerns. Because Uh I want you to realize this this money that we're spending on death penalty cases, it has an impact. There was a county in Texas, Jasper County, Texas, in the early 2000s. Doesn't Texas execute more than... They, yeah, they the execute country. a ludicrous amount of people and they're one of the fastest states in the nation. Like yeah. you spend less time in the system. Texas than don't else. play, boy. Jasper County, Texas had to raise property taxes on its citizens seven percent because of the cost of one capital trial, capital murder Holy trial. Holy shit. Seven percent. I mean, this this isn't money in a vacuum, right? It's not it's not, you know, just money that's out there yeah so, it's not coming out of the federal reserves emergency fund or something absolutely like. the, the uh what did i have california um there was a study in 2011 that california has spent four billion dollars since capital punishment was reinstated in 1978 uh they estimate in the study that the annual cost of pursuing executions is 184 million dollars more than pursuing life without parole uh, so almost 200 million yeah. Almost yeah. a quarter billion dollars. Yeah, and, and then just every year you're you're shelling that out on death penalty cases, right? How many <laughs> how many homeless could we get off the street in California for, for well, two hundred million dollars? Well actually just think about it in terms of criminal justice. Here's a quote from Ray Samuels, who is the former police chief of Newark, California, right? If the millions of dollars currently spent on the death penalty were spent on investigating unsolved homicides, modernizing crime labs, and expanding effective violence prevention programs, our communities would be much safer. I mean, we're, we're talking about loads of money that we're throwing in, in, you know, basically, I mean, like it's, it's, yeah, I mean, if, if it's it, like a quest for revenge, if it costs know? less money to imprison them for life, society is just as safe. Right. So at that point, society is just as safe with the person, more or less. I mean, yeah. if they're absolutely psycho crazy, maybe the guards are at risk. Yeah. Um, maybe like we talked about, the prison population is is at risk. Yeah. Um, so there's still some there's still some risks that are unmitigated. So yeah. I I get the argument, but I think we have to weigh the danger of someone who is absolutely homicidal and insane. Um, you know, still maybe putting guards in danger. Maybe it's worth 
two hundred million dollars. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, at, at that point, I mean, we're talking about prison guards. I mean, it it can it can happen. What what prison guards are just uh they're just crap. We're not well, no, but I mean, like, they're not worth. No, but I mean, are you, telling me, way? are you telling me that they are materially more in danger than they are from someone who's committed arson or robbery who's also in no, prison I, for a I don't think so. Time? I, you know. I mean, yeah, I think I, I don't think you've gained much in that respect. Right. And I think there's also this pervasive idea that, you know, they're all oh, they're going to set all the prisoners free. Like generally, if you get life without parole, you die in prison right. like here in the United States. I mean, that's that's the way it is. Very rarely you'll have a government commute or a governor commute a sentence or you know pardon somebody, but most of the time it's it's for reasons you want somebody to be pardoned, or you know very rarely we'll have things where you know the dude's eighty five years old, he's getting ready to die, and they let him go die at home. Sure, and I you know I'm not worried about eighty five year olds running loose and crazy after they get released from prison. You, you know? never met my grandpa, have you? <laughs> But I, I can't. I'm just kidding. My grandfather was a preacher. <laughs> he was a I, wonderful man. I totally I get the argument, though, that if something is worth doing, then, uh, you know, you can accept a higher, you know, a higher cost. Right. So I think some people would would push back and they would say, OK, well, it costs more money, but it's important for us to have a death penalty because of what the death penalty means. And, and, and all sure. This and, and there's also something there's something I didn't mention before. There's there's also. The idea that the fear of death may prevent people from from performing heinous crimes. Oh. I mean, I, I, we cannot ignore the fact that if if you think you can go live a life with three hots and a cot after murdering your mom and your grandmother and and your dog and your kid, like people may do that. If if the fear of death is like the ultimate uh, deterrent, deterrent. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, let's talk about the death penalty and deterrence. Actually, okay. According to Amnesty International, in April 2012, the National Research Council concluded that studies claiming that the death penalty affects murder rates were fundamentally flawed because they did not consider the effects of non-capital punishments and used incomplete or implausible models. Sounds like they're liars. A 2009 survey of criminologists revealed that over 88% believe the death penalty was not a deterrent to murder. The murder rate in non-death penalty states has remained consistently lower than the rate in states with the death penalty. Oh, that's and weird. To snap that that's into like those gun law. That's like that sounds a mighty bit like oh, uh, gun crime in gun control states is very high. Yeah, that's a convincing argument. Let me let me let me snap that into perspective. Uh, the experience of individual states confirms that data. The number of homicides in New York is at its lowest level in decades, even though the state has been without a death penalty since 2005. In New Jersey, the murder rate dropped two years in a row after the death penalty was repealed, with Candom, New Jersey, reaching its lowest level of violent crime since 1969. It's almost now, like about, compassion is contagious. Well, we talk about the overall trend of violence going down as well, sure. right? So that that's happening at the same time. But what we are seeing is that as what best about as Texas? anyone could tell. Do we know about Texas? I well, mean, no, because we haven't had Texas, you know, ban their, their death penalty. Okay. Now, there is yeah. some of the stats that I'm going to say today. You'll hear me keep talking about 1976. And I want to I want to explain why 1976 comes up. There was a 10-year period in the United States of America where capital punishment was illegal. Really? The Supreme Court decided that capital punishment was... Or actually, I'm sorry, it wasn't... 
Uh, I'm sorry. It was 10 years in California. It was four years federally. Sorry. Interesting. But uh, yeah. And then in 1976, the Supreme Court reversed itself, decided that it wasn't a cruel and unusual punishment. And so most of the data that we have now is like compiled since 1976. Okay. You know what I mean? So if you guys hear that number come up time and time again, you know, but one of the things that I want to ask is, and you know, we're kind of, we're moving into this. What are we really achieving by, by, by doing this? Right. So again, I think one of the big reasons that I felt, okay with the death penalty for a long time was because of the families. Right. And I can't, you know, I, I, again, I can't fault anybody who says, you know, you took everything from me and I feel like I deserve justice. I deserve, you know, or, or or the person themselves, my mom was killed. She deserves justice. An eye for an eye. You know, I, I don't, I don't fault people who say that. However, I strongly recommend that everyone who's listening to my voice right now read a book called Not in Our Name, which is a collection of essays by the families of nine murder victims who take the completely other approach. And I think what's sure, I have the utmost respect for those people. And we've all seen the videos of the of the father in the courtroom who, you know, forgives, uh, forgives the murderer. Yeah. You know, those people are out there. They yeah, exist. Well, I think what's important to note is there is no consensus within the victim community. There are organizations uh, of, of the families of murder victims who are opposed to death penalty. And there, there are organizations who are very much for it. Sure. Um, so I, you know, I think that they are just as conflicted as we are about this, but something that, that hit me, I think kind of like a ton of bricks. And I, you know, I would have to say started like kind of moving me towards where I'm at on the death penalty. Now is this quote that I read, uh, from a anti-death penalty group comprised of victim families in Connecticut. And uh, <clears throat> this is what they had to say in a letter to Connecticut legislators where they were advocating for the, the abolition of the death penalty. Our direct experiences with the criminal justice system and struggling with grief have led us all to the same conclusion. Connecticut's death penalty fails victims' families. In Connecticut, the death penalty is a false promise that goes unfulfilled leaving victims' families frustrated and angry after years of fighting the legal system. Mm. And as the state hangs on to this broken system, it wastes millions of dollars that could go towards much-needed victim services. So when they're saying it it fails uh, victims' families, they're saying, like, you've told us that we're going to get our justice and that this guy is going to die, and here it is 30 years later, right. we're on the verge of death, and this guy's still sitting in there. Right. Or I want you to say, let's say, let's say that he does get executed 10 years in, right? I've seen victims' families who say, every time a hearing comes up, every time there's an appeal, there's there's this lump in the pit of their stomach mm. where they're afraid that he's going to get chance He's, he's going to get, get out on a, on a technicality. Or, yeah, or, or something's going to happen. So not to mention, mm. they say every time one of these hearings comes up, it's like reliving it all over again. Right. And Because, of that, course, you got to pay attention. Yeah. It's not like you're just, you know, ho-hum going about your day. No. And I think that that's what some of these victims' families have woke up to. They're like, I, I need to move past this. Right. And, and again, I'm not critiquing how people deal with grief, but I'm sure. Saying, no, you on want, the other side of that process. I think they have a different opinion than they did going in. You want closure. And in, in the case of, of the death penalty, it's such a harsh, it's such a harsh penalty that, that you can't just give quick closure. You, right. you can't, the responsibility well, is, is too great to just 
close the book and say, okay, we're done. That's where it led me. It led me to, you know, I, I had to say to myself, put a pin for a moment on whether or not we should do this. I don't think the state can effectively do this for families because what they want is like you said, the minute the trial's over, they want to take this guy outside and shoot him in the head and be done with it. Yeah. And we can't allow that to happen. We've got to have that appeals process. We've got to make sure that due process. We could allow it to there. happen. We could allow it to I mean, happen. But I, I feel like with, with any system of justice. So, I mean, I'm going to be real here with any system of justice. People are going to fall through the cracks. People are going to be imprisoned for life uh, improperly. People are are going to be arrested and and put through hell, um, in the in the hope that we're right more than we're wrong. Mm-hmm. So I don't see how the death penalty is is any different there. Like if we're going to abolish the death penalty because oops we get it wrong sometimes, then we've got to go ahead and extend that logic and say, well, we're just not going to jail people. Uh-huh. We're not going to imprison them for life. We're not going to put them in prison at all. Like you accept the best that we can do, right? And we strive to do the best and and we accept that we're going to screw up sometimes. And and maybe because death is the ultimate punishment, like it's it's a completely different ballpark. You're talking about you you're talking about snuffing the potential for there to ever be more to that person's story. Right? Like at least here in in the world that we all perceive. I mean, that that the finality of of an execution is something that's completely different than, you know, living in prison for the rest of your life. And I'm it's not true. saying that living in prison for the rest of your life is is a bowl of peaches, but but you do get three hots in a cot. When when you, you know, acknowledging get to jerk off in the shower. <laughs> acknowledging that there are the flaws in the system that we know there there has to be, I think that the finality of the death penalty is too grave a matter for us to, you know, have it underpinned by this this flawed system and look at people and be like, this is justice. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's it's it, we're asking too much. And and that kind of leads into, you know, what what's kind of like my last question about the death penalty is what do we risk? Because I'm here to tell you we are taking some risks. I get it that you know, in my opinion John Wayne Gacy I, I'm not going to lose any sleep over the fact that he was executed Ted Bundy. Right. You know, I, I I'm not going to lose any sleep. But it's not it's not about those people, right? Mm. So when we go through and we look, since 1976, when they really started tracking this, 166 people sentenced to death have been exonerated and seen their charges dismissed. That's a rate of one out of every 10 people executed in the United States in the same time period. Clifford Williams, who's 43, is spent 43 years on death row in Florida. Just recently had his charges dismissed due to proven official misconduct and false witness identification. So so that tells me we're we're doing it right. I mean, what you're saying is that we're we're doing it right. All the steps that we're going through to ensure appeal processes and and you know, to ensure that that we're not catching people up that that don't deserve to be. It's working, right? All those Holy- only if you get really Pollyanna about it and believe that the other fifteen hundred people deserve to die. <laughs> I mean, if yeah, if okay. obviously there are some that whose appeals didn't go through. No, here's the that, problem, man. You gotta you gotta pump brakes for a second and think about the fact that the only organizations who are out here, like you know, seeing these cases relitigated, and because I, I think what you, I, a lot of people fundamentally misunderstand what the appeals process is about. The appeals process, largely, when we're talking about you know, death penalty cases, 
deals with with uh, irregularities in process during the actual criminal proceedings. They don't relitigate the trial. Right. The appeals process, you know, for instance, uh, there was an instance, a guy named Ray Crone, who, you know, he got a second trial because the prosecution had dumped a video on the defense the night before they brought it up in court. Right. Right. So, so he got a second trial based on that. And that's what they're looking for when we go through that appeals process. But if you want to talk about like admitting new evidence, if you want to talk about, uh, you know, going back and digging through files and, and looking at stuff like that, it's largely stuff like the innocence project. It's largely like people who are volunteering and, and, and doing this work, you know, either through charity or pro bono and stuff. And the Innocence Project, and, these are the people who are going back and, and uh, testing DNA. Right, right, Retesting right. DNA with modern practices. Yeah, and, yeah. And in a lot of cases, getting people off of death row, right? Well, uh, so far, and, 166 in the last 40 years. Yeah. But, you know, we, okay, for instance. And it, there it's, is it's a, pretty hubristic to assume that we've caught them all. Hang on. <laughs> right? there, is a, mean, there is a registry. It's called the National Registry for Exonerations. They've been operating since 1989, okay? 2,488 people since 1989 have been exonerated in the United States, and that's not just death penalty cases, right? Um, they served a combined 21,890 years behind bars, yeah. right? So that... And and they say they're like, and we're working every day to try to find more people. But that's what's think about what's already in there. Mm. Think about these people. There are 737 people sitting on death row in California right now. 737. That is half of all the people who have been executed since 1976. You're telling comfortably tell me how many of those people you think absolutely did it. <laughs> I mean, I could, ne- you know, I, I could know. never say. No, it's an but, unfair but question, ag- but you get my but point. But again, yeah, and again, I come back to like, well, of course, that's because we're imperfect beings, right? Attempting to find the truth, which is not something we can ever realistically <clears throat> do, but we have to try. And that brings us to the crux, because I found myself in the exact same position that you are right now. I said, hey. It, it, we have the DNA evidence. The Innocence Project is out there. We're going to see more and more of these cases, you know, flipped around as they're improved. And I have seen that all come crashing down in the last three months. And that is what really has flipped my opinion on the death penalty. The rest, the rest of the stuff is window dressing. What it comes down to is I found out that the very thing that I was hanging my hat on and expecting to service justice is oftentimes what's standing in the way, and that's forensic evidence. Uh, the forensic evidence game in this country is is broken. Yeah. It's busted. Um, it is. It's it's ludicrous. I mean, so I, I want to talk for a moment about things that the Innocence Project and other people have compiled, and just and just kind of give you examples of what I'm talking about because I didn't realize how deeply flawed this whole thing was. According to the Innocence Project, only 5 to 10% of criminal cases in the United States involve biological evidence. Uh, even when we do have DNA, the evidence, the problem is, is not being interpreted correctly. The misapplication of forensic evidence contributed to 45% of all wrongful convictions overturned by further DNA testing and 24% uh, nationwide. Right. Of, you know, if we look across the country, whether they were overturned by DNA or not. If you have two complete DNA samples, DNA testing is perfectly is practically infallible. 
if we can, you know, when they do DNA testing, they look at loci. And if you can go through and look at 13 loci and match it to 13, you know, that's fine. You're going to get a match and you can pretty much hang your hat on that match. The problem is, is that now with modern science, we have the ability to detect DNA in samples smaller than right, in these we ever intended. So you're, so a hair could blow off your head and land in a car. Yeah. Or what they call touch DNA. Which is simply the DNA that you leave behind when you touch a doorknob. Yeah, you touch skin a shoe. cells. Skin so cells on a doorknob. The problem is, is that we're taking those, and the and the science is good. The science, the scientific process of right. what they're doing it's is actually fine. your DNA on the doorknob. But then However, the prosecutors, no, it's not actually your DNA. It is DNA that could be from someone like you. Oh. And we're Wait, going what? in, yes, we can't match touch DNA like that. You're down to two or three loci. And and you can't say with certainty that is this person's DNA. Eh? We're using DNA like that in court and saying, you know, this DNA is consistent with his DNA. Mm. And a jury hears that and they hear, oh, that's DNA. Exa- they hear exactly what I thought. They hear is- exactly what you thought. If we have, if I have one blood sample, a complete blood sample, and I get something from the crime scene, right? That's a complete blood sample. Then that's what you're thinking of. And that's what I was thinking of. And that's what the juries are thinking of. But oftentimes we're using this touch DNA, the skin cells on a, on a doorknob or, or on a shoe, or we're using uh, a fragment from a blood splatter uh, that's 20 years old. That actually happened. And, and saying, oh, well, this is consistent with her. So, you know, chances are it was definitely her. And it just adds to anytime you're going chances are in a, in a death yeah. penalty or a life sentence case, like you're screwing the pooch. <laughs> there is an excellent series right now that's on Netflix. And I, I cannot stress this enough. Please, everyone go watch it. It's called Exhibit A. And they go through there's an episode about touch DNA. There's an episode about blood splatter analysis. Uh, an episode about cadaver dogs and and even uh, videos. Uh, what do you call it? Like forensic photography. Uh, and and it just it goes through and it shows you how. Again, it's not that the science is junk. It's that we're asking it to prove too much in court. Right. And and perhaps the representation of that science is a little bit junk. Right. Especially when it's a prosecutor who's who's got to get the case. Exactly. So uh, a 2009 report issued by the National Academy of Sciences had this to say. Among existing forensic methods, only nuclear DNA analysis has been rigorously shown to have the capacity to consistently and with a high degree of certainty demonstrate a connection between an evidentiary sample and a specific individual or source. The report went on to state that some forensic science disciplines are supported by little rigorous systematic research to validate the discipline's basic premises and techniques. Such common forensic techniques as fingerprint examinations, Mm -hmm. firearm ballistics, tool mark identifications, handwriting examinations, microscopic hair analysis, and bite mark comparisons fell into this category. Again, it doesn't mean that they're junk science, except for bite marks and handwriting is junk science. You know what I mean? I'm just going to come out and say it. I don't know about junk. No, I, dude, bite marks and, and handwriting is marks, junk yeah. science. Handwriting, though, I mean, I feel like... <laughs> I promise you they are. In 2015, the FBI announced that its hair microscopy experts overstated the probability of a match between hair evidence and the defendant's hair in 95% of the 268 cases it had reviewed. 
The very thing that I thought was going to save us, it's what's damning these people. And I mean, we're talking about across the criminal justice system, but but yeah, where this it doesn't leads just me, apply to, to death penalty cases. Yeah, it this absolutely is across does. the board. This right. Is, but the death penalty is where the stakes are highest. Sure. And that's why I felt like I had to pump brakes for a second. I sure. had to say, so, hang on a minute. So if my argument is like, yeah, this happens all across the... You know, we, we accept some kind of flaws, but we're not addressing the elephant in the room, right. which is that there's this huge flaw. Then that flaw then is amplified yeah. up here at the death and, and there are so many people, if you go through the, the Innocence Project or the, the National Registry's databases, that it's 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 just bite mark analysis, ballistics, da-da-da-da. Uh, so it's, it's not a situation where always where... You know, we've got prosecutors in back rooms trying to get things done. It's situations where, you know, we had we had science. We had the 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 what do you want to call it? The the cloak of science wrapped around this verdict, but it was all junk, man. It was it was all built on lies. Five hundred and thirty-three of the people who are listed on the National Exonerations Registry right now, which is a quarter, uh, were conflicted with flawed or misleading forensic evidence. Wow. A quarter of all the people we've we've found to be exonerated since 1989, which is a pittance. That's, that's you know, what, 30 years. 30 years. Yeah. You go back some, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know? we start going forward. Right, right. I think, I, I, I don't want to necessarily bag on, you know, the, the attorneys and the cops, because I, I will say this. I don't know which one it is. In some cases, I think there are cops and there are DAs who are just out to advance their career. They're out for closure rates. They don't really give a damn. And in some cases, I think you have jaded cops who are like, I know this guy did it. Oh, yeah. And I'm going to overlook. I know that's shaky. No, but, that's but human, you know what man. I mean? It's human. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's the same thing I do when I look at Pete Buttigieg and I hate his face. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> I know that's not okay. Yeah. And yeah. I know that Pete Buttigieg is a, is, is a fine person despite his face. But, I mean, you're going to go on your gut feeling sometimes and, and maybe sometimes a lot, depending yeah. on who you are, you know? Yeah. You're, and and it's you know, human. It's and if you gotta overlook, you know, the, so there's one of the cases on that that Netflix special that I was talking about was they were trying to go through and they were trying to close out cold cases, and and you know, I mean, like I, I feel like the detectives involved were very sincere in wanting to bring justice for somebody who, you know, previous squad, you know, when the murder happened, they couldn't solve the case, and right. and these guys want to bring justice. Well, for imagine those the pressure of being a detective who is who has failed a family, and you've had to look in their eyes and talk to them, right? And right. and here it is, twenty years later, and you've got a shred of hope. Yeah, you know, you feel and that's and that's you what feel they, like you're, you know, you are the instrument of justice. And it's, that's what it's they, a lot of pressure. What they ended up having was this lab tech. He's like, you know, I'm going to look at the the case again, and he looks at, I believe it was a a, a bed sheet. Yeah. And he finds what he believes to be blood. And he says, oh, this this is blood and it's got to be in this blood splatter. And, and if that's the case, then it means that the guy's wife did it. And everybody gets excited because they broke the case. Right. And then somebody who's, you know, objective from the outside, another expert comes through and looks at it and he's like, I'm not even sure that's blood, yo. You know what I mean? It's like it, I get where they're coming from in some senses. But we've also got to talk about another elephant in the room, which is the fact that, no, I think there's also a ton of naked greed that is contributing to this. I want to talk about incentives for a moment, and I want to talk about expert witnesses. 
74%, and this is according to SEAC Incorporated, a company that serves as an expert witness directory, right? Really? Yes. A company? A company. 74% of expert witnesses require an upfront retainer. The median initial retainer fee for an expert witness is $2,000. The median hourly fee for file review and preparation for all medical expert witnesses is $350, okay. 43% higher than for non-medical experts. The median testimony hourly fee for the medical expert witness is $500. What? So we're looking at... What? Wait a second. A five, I'm sorry, $500 an hour. I'm sorry. An those hour? Are, those, are, those are hourly rates. Yes. 500 an hour? Yes. For testimony? For testimony. And that means if he went to court that day and sat in court and didn't get called till 2 o'clock, he's on the clock. You know how I, I feel? I feel about... I feel... I would feel the same way if if we were if we were paying jurors, right? right. Jury duty is a is a civil duty. We don't yeah. get paid for it. Right. And that keeps it clean. Right. It it keeps it just and mm -hmm. it keeps it you'd hope unbiased and and fair. Dude, if the witness <laughs> or the the if if you've got someone well, testifying in court as an expert and they're being paid ludicrous amounts well, of money, is you, you cannot expect them to be unbiased. You can't it, immediately off the jump. We are asking for corruption, which is exactly why we don't pay fact witnesses. Sure. So there's there's a there's a difference between a fact witness and an evidence. A fact witness would be somebody who was like. Uh, you know, yes, I, I saw, saw it that all happen, happen right. or I heard him say this over the phone. You can't give them any kind of compensation, but an expert witness. And, and I sort of understand because it is work. It is work for an expert witness to review the case files, to, to brush up on yeah, the situation. Yes, it is. But we're talking about, we're talking about justice. We're talking about a duty to, to victims, mm -hmm. um, and money, it's like it's like healthcare. Money doesn't belong in that equation. Mm, so what know? happens? So what happens if you can't secure expert witnesses and you can't prove your case because there's no monetary incentive for them to stop their jobs or their lives for three weeks right. and come across country to testify in your case? Right. It's it's a tricky, messed up thing. I I personally and think the state picks up the tab for expert witnesses. Like we're paying five hundred dollars an hour, and the state picks up the tab when uh, for we provide only their for defense. prosecutors though, right? No, we pick up the tab when when they have to have a court appointed attorney. You know what I'm saying? Wow. Yeah, that's how these trials get to be so expensive, man. So so. You're right. There is a gross incentive there, and I see it, and I think we have to recognize it. I have an example. Would you like to hear an example? Sure. You're depressing me. Radley Balco and Tucker Carrington, Carrington have an eye-opening book called The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist. Okay? Uh, this is a summary from Forensic Magazine of that book. <clears throat> it's a nonfiction account of the junk science practiced by forensic pathologist Dr. Stephen Hain, who performed most of the forensic autopsies in the state of Mississippi for decades. Dr. Hain once testified under oath that he could tell from examining a gunshot wound that two people's hands were on the gun that made the wound. Wow. That is absurd. Dr. Hain recruited forensic odontologist Michael West to testify for the prosecution at multiple murder trials. West got caught pressing dental molds against the skin of cadavers to create bite mark injuries that he would then testify the victim had been bitten by the accused. What? 
What possible incentive could he have to do that? $7,200 for a 12-hour trial. No, no, no. I mean, he's going to go, he's going to make the money anyway, right? If he says, if he says yay or nay, he's still making the same money. Not if there wasn't a bite mark and he was working with the pathologist who did the autopsies. So I go and I get a mold from, you know, the person we say, let's make some bite marks. We say, hey, we found a bite mark. I'm buying a yacht. but there's no bite mark on the body yet, right? So we go to the police and we say, hey, we need a bite mold. We take his mold, go in there and put it on the cadaver. Now there's a mold. No, now there's a bite mark dude, that matches. That's not real. No, that's absolutely real. Okay. You know why I support the death penalty, buddy? <laughs> For that asshole. For that asshole For right people. there. Seriously. There are crimes that are so heinous. <laughs> and we know we know he's committed them. Yeah. That man lives. I... Does he live? I under- That's the ultimate yes. perversion of 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 everything of I under- justice. I understand of, of goodness. I understand like, the gut impulse to want to take that man's life. I get it. But what I'm saying is, we're risking too much in the process with the system that we have. Is that in order to kill that man, we have to afford protections to all these other people, and the protections simply aren't holding up. They aren't holding up. But but they're not holding up across the entire justice system. No, dude. you're right. Across the entire justice system. You're absolutely right. But only in the case of the death penalty are the stakes that high to where I think we should stop doing the death penalty Mm. because of the overall sickness Mm. of the justice system. Mm. No, I completely agree. This 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 shit is happening in mass. It's happening in arson. By the way, I found out that freaking arson uh investigator it's it's yeah our they said one dude <laughs> described it it's an art not a science right i mean it's 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 just baffling and i thought these people knew what they were talking about and they don't so i i've pretty much laid out my case but i would like if you don't mind i would like to close my case by by just telling you two stories that's that's all i want to do is i want to tell two stories um i when i was kind of pulling this all together I came through across so many stories that will make you just feel terrible and make you feel sick. I'm but already, I know, I know, kind of feeling sick, but man. These two right here, I think, I, you know, I probably could have started with this and then don't we could have just talked about whatever. No, don't do this to me. I can't handle it today. <laughs> I've been working 14 hour days for two weeks, man. Come from, on, don't do this to from me. From the LA Times. The murder conviction of Bill Richards of Mojave led the California legislature to confront the problem of junk science in the courtroom but only after an innocent man served 22 years in prison for supposedly killing his wife. After two hung juries failed to convict Richards, prosecutors found a bite pattern expert who tilted the scales by matching a mark on the victim's hand to Richards' crooked teeth. Years later, attorneys at the California Innocence Project, based in San Diego, requested testing of samples from the murder weapon, which uncovered DNA that did not belong to either Richards or his wife. The expert, under pressure, recanted and admitted that there was no scientific basis for any of his bite mark findings in the case. But Richard's release was delayed for eight more years after prosecutors argued successfully that only factual testimony, not expert opinions, can be false evidence under California law. Oh, my God. It took new legislation to change the definition of false evidence to include disproven or recanted expert opinions before Richards walked out of prison who are these in 2016. Who, who, who I, are these people? Well, how could you How could you live with yourself? Like. Well, that was actually Kamala Harris's office. I just, I just had to throw that out there. But anyway, <laughs> um, 
And then there's this story, which which really gets me because as you'll quickly notice, this happened pretty much right on top of us doing this episode. On August 21st, the state of Texas executed Larry Swearingen for the death of Melissa Trotter. Trotter's body had been found dumped in a state forest after having been strangled with a pair of pantyhose. A Texas crime lab technician falsely testified that pantyhose found in Swearingen's home were a unique physical match to the ligature, to the exclusion of all other pantyhose. Oh, God. In closing argument to the jury, the prosecution called this evidence the smoking gun of Swearingen's guilt. However, the technician's notes of her initial examination of the evidence, which were withheld from the the defense at trial, indicated that she initially had found no physical match between ligature and pantyhose. Weeks before the execution, the Texas Crime Lab Director, Brady W. Mills, released a letter admitting the technician's trial testimony was overstated. Shortly before the execution, he also conceded that testimony by a crime lab serology expert dismissing exculpatory blood evidence had also been inaccurate. DNA testing of blood flakes found under Trotter's fingernails produced a DNA profile of an unidentified male that excluded Swearingen. The serologist testified without any scientific basis that the blood excluding Swearingen came from contamination, quote, either at the time the sample was being collected at autopsy or after the sample was being collected. So, yeah, again, I, I wholeheartedly support the death penalty theory <laughs> for these people, I, I just, for every single one of these people. A county medical examiner testified at trial that Trotter had been dead nearly a month at the time her body was discovered. She later recanted that testimony, saying Trotter died no more than two weeks before. Eight other experts, including forensic pathologists, forensic entomologists, and a forensic anthropologist, agreed with the two-week assessment. However, given that time of death, it was impossible for Swearingen to have committed the murder. Three days after Trotter's disappearance, Swearingen was arrested for outstanding traffic warrants and was still in jail three weeks later when Trotter's body was discovered. We just killed that guy on August 21st. I can't imagine how every single person, every step of the way, just kept going. I mean, this is not, this This episode has not turned into an indictment of the death penalty. It hasn't. It hasn't. No, I I get it. I I get it. I think it's only. It is. But but these are the people who are deciding every day who gets punished and who gets to go free. Yeah. And we've got Epstein's in the world Mm -hmm. with absolutely known heinous crimes, rich as as God getting getting 10 months. In, in club fed. Meanwhile, you've got prosecutors in California murdering people yeah. when they know, when they know every step of the way. Yeah. Every, I, everybody, everybody on earth knew that Larry Swearingen was innocent, but the ball couldn't, the ball couldn't be stopped. And that's what I'm saying. The justice that you want is like the justice those families want. You just want to take the guy outside and shoot him in the head, but we can't, the state can't do that. The state can't ever do that. And if we can't do that, then we can't effectively use the death penalty, in my opinion. That's that's where this thing took me, man. Um, I'm a little flabbergasted. <laughs> I'm, I'm disappointed. Yeah. I'm sad. Hit me like a ton of bricks, man. 
He changed my mind. Congrats. Not sure I feel good about it. <laughs> Thanks. Here we are. Yeah. Beans is off strike. <laughs> Wonder what he's got to say. Beans? You know, actually, we uh, we took a moment, kind of composed ourselves. because yeah, You it, composed yourself. It kind of still got, fully uncomposed. Got very emotional there at the end. But to tell you the truth, like... Well, for one, Beans is still on strike, but it, it, it's not the time for jokes and whatnot. Um, I wanted I wanted to say one last thing. Like, I did something on purpose today, and I just kind of wanted to come clean about it. Every story that you heard me say in the episode uh, were white guys. I never touched on racial disparities in, in death penalty sentencing. 40%, 40% of the people on death row are black. Uh, you know, when we start digging through that national registry I was talking about and we start looking at states like Mississippi and Louisiana and Alabama, the the insane disproportionate number of black people who are getting sentenced to, you know, the death penalty. And then 20 years later, you find out, yeah, it was a racist prosecutor. Yes, it was a racist judge. Um, it's 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 very much so out there. So if if poor old Larry Swearingen is getting treated like that. How do you how do you think the black inmates are getting treated? You know, and uh, I just like I said, man, I, I I've been going through it kind of over the course of this summer with the death penalty, and I just I can't I can't be complicit in that anymore. I've got to I've I've got to say no, no, we've got to stop. Mm. Yep, we've got to stop. I'm not even dropping a Taylor Swift today. Yeah. I think uh, we appreciate you guys listening. And I think we're just going to end the episode right here. Hello folks. This is theory. One third of the sense and theory podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as we did making it, but I want to take a moment to remind you that the discussion doesn't end here. Pop on over to senseandtheorypodcast.com where you'll find all the necessary links to tell us how brilliant and or stupid we are on social media. If you like what we're doing here and want to help us with the crippling cost of all the writers in Beanzo's contract, check out our page at patreon.com slash senseandtheory. If you can't chip in financially but still want to show your support, you can always rate and review us on iTunes or just tell your friends and family about us. Either way, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.